0: have your Bibles, please open them to Revelation chapter 6. We are currently looking at the seven seals on the scroll that was in the hand of the one who was seated upon the throne And that the Lamb was the only one able to take the scroll out of the hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And the scroll was sealed with seven seals. The seven seals divide into two groups. The first group of four, the second group of three. The first four seals pertain to cataclysmic events that will happen on the earth right up until the return of Christ. Characterized by four horsemen. Events such as war and violence depicted by the red horse. Events such as disease and famine and economic calamity depicted by the black horse. Events such as death depicted by the pale horse. Events all under the sovereignty of God depicted by the white horse. Now that the four horsemen have been identified the scene changes from earth to heaven. The opening of the fifth seal reveals an altar in heaven Under which are the souls of faithful martyrs. Individuals who have been killed for their faith. They didn't just die. They weren't just killed. They were killed for their faith. They were killed because of their belief in and promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whereas the first... Four seals reveal future turbulent times on the earth. The fifth seal reveals the martyrdom of the saints and the vision of their souls in heaven. So first of all, we will look at the souls of the martyrs, verse 9. Verse 9 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Here he sees a vision of the souls of those who had been persecuted and ultimately killed because of the gospel. We must be honest with ourselves. No one wants to be persecuted. I don't think anyone is sitting around hoping that persecution will come upon them this week. I don't think anyone is hoping that they will find persecution at their job because of their Christian faith. I don't think anyone is looking forward to having the neighbors with their shovels and pitchforks coming in the middle of the night storming your home saying that they want you to stop this belief in Jesus Christ. I don't think anyone is interested in that or looking for that. We look at men like the apostle Paul and we consider him the exception. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 10 says this, but you Paul is speaking now. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, here we go, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Well, praise the Lord for that. So we look at Paul and we see that he was exposed to these severe trials, severe persecution, and he says, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Ultimately, Paul was beheaded. And there, even there, the Lord delivered him. For Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Either way, Paul's point is, I win either way. We read this portion of Scripture with a sense of admiration and dread. Admiration that he endured these persecutions and afflictions. But dread that these might one day happen to us. But notice what Paul says in the very next verse of 2 Timothy. Verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In the Greek this is called the future indicative. It's going to happen and indicative it's an absolute statement of fact. Not potential action. It's not a possibility. Hey, in the future some of you might. He says yes and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Every true Christian is to expect persecution. What does he mean by persecution? Abortionists say they are persecuted when Christians are on the sidewalk outside of the abortion clinic. They are being persecuted. Atheists say they are persecuted every time they have to look at money that says in God we trust. The LGBTQ plus community says that they are persecuted any time they hear Christians saying that their behavior is sinful. Is this what Paul calls persecution? Is this the kind of persecution that Paul says, you better be ready for this. The word dioko in the Greek, it means to harass, to molest, to accuse, to pursue in a hostile manner. To cause, to flee, to drive away. The persecution that Paul is talking about is persecution that threatens our bodily, uh, our bodily safety. What kind of things would cause us to run away or to be tempted to run away? What kind of things would cause us to want to be put to flight? Certainly would not be unkind or offensive words. Nobody wants to be called names. Nobody wants to be spoken to harshly. But it's only when it ramps up to physical threats that then there is a, there is a possibility that I may need to move someplace else. Perhaps threats to our homes, to our livelihood, to our family, to our children. So who are these that are going to persecute us? There are two groups of people in the world. Those who are of the kingdom of God, born from above. John 18.36, God says, My kingdom is not of this world. Philippians 3.20, we're told as believers that our citizenship is in heaven, right? Even though I'm dwelling on the earth here, I live here right now, My citizenship is in heaven. Whenever you go on vacation, it's enjoyable to visit new places. It's fun to be in a different place where you have a different bed, if the bed's comfortable. A different bed and you have restaurants you can eat. And this is all exciting. But it's not home. It's not home. And after a while, the excitement wears off. I can't imagine a person who earns their living by flying every single week, getting on an airplane, flying to some place, being in a hotel all week long, living out of a suitcase, then getting back on a plane and coming back at the end of the week. I can't envision living a life like that. I can't envision a truck driver's life where you get in your truck on Sunday evening or Monday morning And you drive all week long and you're in a different town every night and you're sleeping in your sleeper in in your, your, your cab or maybe you're getting a cheap hotel someplace. You're eating meals from a McDonald's or Burger King or someplace like that. At the end of the week, you just can't wait to get home. You just want to get home. God says our citizenship is in heaven. We do live here. But for those unbelievers who are filling their coffers with all kinds of finances and surrounding themselves with things, they better enjoy themselves because this is the only heaven they're going to have. This is as good as it gets. And yet anyone who has invested in the things of this world will readily admit to you it doesn't bring contentment or happiness or fulfillment because there's always something bigger. The guy that buys the 24-foot camper, he won't be happy until he gets a 28-foot camper. And then, if he can only get a 32-foot camper, and then he buys a pickup and gets a fifth wheel. Well, if he gets a a 32-foot, well, maybe he wants to get a 38-foot fifth wheel. Maybe he wants to get a 40-foot fifth wheel. It's always this elusive thing out there. Those who are of the kingdom of God, they're not of this world their citizenship is in heaven. They're dwelling here like the one who's on vacation out of town. They're certainly alive but they're looking forward to going back home. Those who, secondly, who are of the kingdom of this world, they're born from below. They're in this world. Their citizenship is in this world. They, everything they own is in this world. Their eyes never look above the horizon of this world. This is their whole world, and in Luke sixteen eight, Jesus calls them the sons of this world, eon, this age. Luke eight twenty, or excuse me, John eight twenty three, Jesus says to the Pharisees, "You are from beneath; I am from above. You are of this world, this cosmos, this world, this sphere, this world system." Revelation eight thirteen. Jesus calls them the inhabitants of the earth. Greek word gay, it's a word which means opposite of heaven, opposed to heaven. Those who are of the kingdom of this world, they persecute those who are of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was the first one to mention this word, persecute. He was the first one to mention it in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10, blessed are those who are dioko, who are Persecuted. In the New Testament, he reminds them, this will be a part of being a Christian. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're not persecuted because they don't pay their taxes. They're not persecuted because they have broken the law. They were speeding or they stole a car. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That those who truly belong to Christ their desire will be to serve God and to serve God aloud. I don't know if you've ever been in a group of people You're you're the lone Christian in the group. And they're all discussing some ideology of the world. You're just taking this all in and you feel like the top of your head's going to blow off because you feel the need to say something. But you know, as soon as I open my mouth and say what I want to say, I know what's going to happen. The daggers are going to come out. The insults are going to fly. And pretty soon people who were my friends are suddenly my enemies. Simply because I voiced what the word of God has to say. Jeremiah tried doing that. Jeremiah said, you know what, I'm just not, I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm not going to say anything anymore. Anytime I open my mouth, it gets me in trouble. I'm just going to shut my mouth. And God said of Jeremiah, that the word of God burned with him like a fire. Until he could not keep silent. He could not. If you were indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, it longs to do that. It lusts, is what James says, to do that which glorifies God. It yearns to glorify God. And so Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of this world is at war with the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if you know that or not, but that's the case. The kingdom of this world is at war with the kingdom of heaven. The enmity goes way back to the Garden of Eden, where sin entered the world. Satan was the original tempter then, tempted Eve, she tried to do verbal battle with the serpent, Satan, and ultimately she added to the Word of God in an attempt to protect the Word of God, and she succumbed to the temptation, and she partook of the fruit that God forbade her to partake of, and she gave it to her husband and he ate. And as a result of that, judgment came upon all of humanity. The sin was not charged to the woman though she was the first one to break the law of God. The sin was charged to the man. And so to this day that's why men are in leadership in churches because of the deception of the woman. Man was created first and then the woman man was not in the deception the woman was. She was deceived. The man flatly disobeyed. He just flatly disobeyed. But God prophesied That he would be victorious over the world, the flesh and the devil, through the person of Christ when he said in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, capital S, seed, referring to Christ. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is going to be a continual battle that will go on until Christ claims victory at the end, gathers all of the kingdom And presents it to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15.24 The more we press the gospel to the hearts and consciences of those in the world who do not believe. The more we will be persecuted. He goes on and he says of what he saw in heaven. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Under the altar is a reference to the base of the altar of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Much of the Old Testament is placed in the book of Revelation. For those who are familiar with Old Testament sacrifices and law and the fulfillment of it. When an animal was sacrificed as an offering to the Lord, its blood was poured out at the base of the altar, under the altar, down at the bottom. Leviticus 4, seven And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord which is in the tabernacle of meeting and he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. In this vision John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. They've been put under the altar. Remember this is a vision. This is not an actual thing that he's seeing. It's a a vision that's portraying a truth. The soul is the life of man apart from the body. It's a Greek word pneuma. If you've ever, you have a pneumatic tool. It's an air tool, an air gun. If you have pneumonia, P-N-E-U-M-O-N-I-A. Pneumonia comes from pneuma, the, the Greek word for air. The spirit is described, is defined as air. This this thing you can't touch, you can't hold it. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, it's almost like the wind. You You can't see the wind, you can only see its effects. So you can't see the spirit, you can only see its effects in the heart and lives of people. And so these are the souls. This is not the flesh of those who have been martyred. Their flesh remains behind here. But when they die, immediately upon their death, their soul leaves their body. There is no limbo. There is no purgatory. Not from scripture there isn't. And the whole concept of purgatory. That you have to go and spend a thousand years or less in a place of suffering to atone for your sins. Well, that sounds holy perhaps to the Roman Catholic Church and to the Roman Catholics, but it is a slap in the face of Christ who paid for all of your sins. When Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. He didn't say, well, my job's finished. Now the rest is up to them. Good luck. And send them on their way. That isn't it. Christ paid for all of our sins. All of my sins were future at the time that Christ died. All of my sins. Which means the sins I committed before I confessed my my surrender to Christ, those sins were forgiven, but so were the sins that were forgiven the the next day and the next day and the next day and the sins I will commit tomorrow and the sins I will commit next week. Christ paid for the atonement. He paid the price. So if you wonder what happens to people when they die, the instruction in this particular passage of Scripture is that immediately upon death, whether you die naturally, whether you're hit by a car, or whether or not you're killed as a result of your faith, you immediately your soul is immediately transported into the presence of God. And in this place, in this particular case, he sees their souls, this one group of people who have all been martyred for their faith, they're all gathered under the altar, at the base of the altar. The soul is the life of man apart from the body. It is that part of man that was redeemed. The reason you and I still have a struggle in our Christian life is because my soul has been made perfect. My flesh has not. And my flesh like the Israelites in the wilderness it still longs for the leeks and the garlic of Egypt. Even though I was miserable back there I was in bondage back there. But oh, when persecution comes, when difficulty comes, all of a sudden, oh, we were much better back there. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. You're an idiot if you think you were. But that's the longing of the flesh. So the soul is separated from the body, goes into the presence of the Lord. And these souls are not in a holding pattern. They're not in a soul sleep. They're in heaven. And in the vision, John sees them under the altar. These are the souls of those who were slain. Interesting word. The word means slaughtered. Sphazo is a Greek word. Butchered. Killed. Murdered. Put to death. They didn't simply die. They, they weren't scared to death. They didn't die of a broken heart. They didn't die because they felt abandoned by everyone. You Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he said all of these things that he went through and yet the Lord delivered me out of them all. These were people who They paid with their lives because of their Christian faith. They were murdered. And in this case, they were murdered for the cause of Christ. And this word "spadzo" it's a word which means, as I said, butchered, slaughtered, killed. And it would have been, at times, in the most horrendous ways. You remember in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is preaching to the Jews and when they have had enough. Bible says they plugged their ears and they screamed and ran at him. They couldn't kill him fast enough. They were so incensed by the message especially when he said, look, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Oh, that's all they needed to hear. He's a blasphemer. We can't kill him fast enough. This word "spazo" it's the same word that is used to describe the way that Cain killed his brother. First John 3.12 The word was used to describe how Cain murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Because, the scripture says, Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Abel had done nothing to his brother. He had done nothing wrong. He hadn't offended him by stealing from him or striking him. Cheating on him. He had done none of those things. He was simply righteous. And that was a threat to Cain who was not righteous. This is the root of the matter. This is what's at the root of the matter with the animosity that the world has against you. When my mother was dying many years ago. There was a woman in her neighborhood that used to walk by every single day walking her dog. She'd come over. I'd have my mother out on the back uh, deck getting some sun. And, and the woman would stop by and converse with me and converse with my mother. And we, She was just the nicest woman. After my mother died, I was over at the post office getting my mail. And this woman walked in. I said, hello, how are you? She said, hello to me we get to talking and she said, Oh, it's those evangelicals. They're causing all the problems. And I said to her, Well, I'm an evangelical. Wow. In the public post office, with people standing around. What? You're an evangelical? I can't believe it. She's going on like this and I'm looking around at all these people and I thought, All I said was, I'm an evangelical. I didn't say I'm going to come out and blow up your home. I didn't say I'm going to go out and slit all your tires. I just said I'm an evangelical. That's all I said. And I had done nothing to her. And in fact, we had a very fine relationship prior to this meeting at the post office. We joked a little bit. She had a poodle. She said her poodle loved... um, I can't remember. I think it was... um, Topps, but at that time it wasn't Topps Market, but love their rotisserie chicken. And I said, oh, he doesn't like giant eagle rotisserie chicken. And she said, oh no, he hates giant eagle rotisserie chicken. And that became a point of, we just laughed about that, thought that was hilarious, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. It's a dog. A dog's going to eat what you put in front of him, and if he doesn't eat it, eventually he'll get hungry enough and he'll eat. But the day I announced to her that I was an evangelical, just simply saying, when she had such an issue with it, I was simply trying to tell her, they're not all boogeymen, I'm an evangelical, and you and I get along fine. Cain's heart was evil. Abel's heart was righteous. And the righteousness of Abel was a threat to Cain. And he perceived it as such a threat that he had to terminate his brother's life take his brother's life. In the same way an abortionist is persecuted and threatened by the presence of prayer of God's people outside of an abortion clinic. In the same way, they're threatened by that. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 6, Jesus is described as the lamb that was slain. Same word, svadzo. He didn't just die, he was executed. And why was he executed? Simply because he told them the truth. John 8.40 Jesus said, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. Which I heard from God. The Jews demanded crucifixion. They didn't just demand that he die. Be stoned. Or sawn in half as was acceptable by Judaism. They demanded that he be crucified, which was not permitted under Jewish law. Even Pilate was confused by this and asked them, what has he done? Remember, crucifixion was reserved for the most hardened criminals. It was a public execution, not only of horror and humiliation... But a threat to those, if you think about doing the same crime that he did, and they would nail the crime above the head of the, of the accused. If you ever think about doing that crime, this is going to be you. Even Pilate asked. And in Matthew 27, 23, Then the governor said, "Why? What evil has he done? Listen to their answer. But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. I'm not even going to tell you what he did. Because they have no charges. They have no crime. But they've decided that he's guilty. And so when Pilate says, why, what has he done? Their response is, let's not be worried with trivials. Get the job done, let's go. And in fact they go on and say, if you don't do this, we're going to let Caesar know. That you allowed a man who claims to be king of the Jews. In competition with Caesar. We're going to let him know that you let this guy go. Jesus was from God. They were from the world. Plain and simple. Lastly in Revelation 6.4. Lastly on this point. I'm only on the first point here. Lastly on this point. When God takes peace from the earth. Men will kill. We saw that. When we were talking about the, the red horse. You take peace from the earth and men will kill one another. That Greek word, stadzo, that word means they will slaughter one another. They won't just kill one another. So we look at how men kill one another and we think, how barbaric. I, I hope you pray for police officers. I hope you do. They are forced to see every single day the worst of humanity. And, and it, it does something to their psyche. It does something to their personage. How, how could human beings do this to one another? How could they do this? The, the sanctity of life is all through humanity. If a deer is hit on the side of the road, people drive right by it. There's an automobile accident where there's a human being in that car. People slow down and look at the car and look back there to see what's going on. It's more than just idle curiosity. There's the sanctity of human life. They know that something sacred is in that vehicle and it has perhaps died. So with that reality, with the sanctity and sacredness of human life, what would prompt another human being to treat a fellow human being with such contempt and violence? What would cause someone to do that? That's the word that he used here. It means with savagery and willful intent. That is what is in the heart of all unregenerate men. So that when you're dealing with your neighbor who, Hi Bob! Hi Tom! How are you doing? They don't ever go to church. They're nice people. They're very sweet people. They take excellent care of their yard. But you've never really had any kind of a deep discussion with them about spiritual things. And as long as you don't, everything's kosher. You get along fine with them. He's over helping you, bringing over his weed eater because yours is broken and you're giving him his hedge cl- or your hedge clippers. And It's a great symbiotic relationship until one day the discussion opens up and you start talking about Jesus. You'll find out where his heart really is. And I'm not saying every single person is as wicked as they can possibly be. But the reality is, that is what is at the basis of every unregenerate heart. You know how wicked your own heart is. You know how wicked, as a born-again child of God with a brand new soul within you, you know you are capable of the most vile thoughts, most hateful thoughts when someone crosses you in traffic. You can't just simply say, oh sure, go ahead. I'll show you. Try and pull in front of me. So what caused the deaths of these who were under the altar? What was it that caused their deaths? Why were they killed? And John reveals it to us. They were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. These are two reasons why people are martyred. For the word of God and for the testimony. There's the word of God that stands alone. The testimony, martyria, where we get the English word martyr from, that's witness, testimony. There's the word of God standing alone, and then that you who have embraced the word of God and have chosen to speak it, and you've chosen to live it, and you've chosen to train your children that way, and you've chosen to tell people whenever you communicate with them that this is how you believe. And that this isn't just a fad or a phase that you're going through in your life. This is who you are. You've been made a new man in Christ. This is the way I used to be. This is the way I am now. And no one's going to talk me off this ledge. This is where I am. The Word of God. For the Word of God. It is the standard of truth. This is what is missing today in our culture. There is no standard of truth. The standard is whatever they decide the standard is. Here's the problem. Whatever they decide the standard is, they haven't thought two days ahead. Because whatever the standard is, it develops all kinds of complications. And they haven't thought through those complications yet. So when the complications arise, they come up with more rules and regulations to accommodate the complications. And it becomes more voluminous. And it becomes more ridiculous. And you say to yourself, this is almost like a cartoon. Who would ever believe these things? Word of God. Absolute standard of truth. Christ came to bear witness of the truth. John 18.37 For this cause I was born, Jesus said, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's why they just don't get it. They don't get it. They don't hear his voice. They're not of the truth. You want to just grab him by the p- lapels, right? And shake him. Can't you see the truth of this? It's right there. It's right there. Here, it's right. Let me read it to you again. I'll read it real slow. Read it. For this cause I was... Booked. They'll go like this. Stop with the stupidness. Okay? I don't want to hear it. That's good for you. I'm glad you believe it. I don't believe it. In response to this, Jesus saying, for this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I may, should bear witness to the truth. You know what Pilate's response to that was? What is truth? I've come to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? And the old Shakespearean plays, they used to call it a wax nose. And you put on a rubber nose that could, the shape could go any way you wanted it to go. That's what they would call this, a wax nose. It's something that can be molded and shaped, not with the Word of God. The Word of God is immovable. 119th Psalm, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. That's the end of the conversation. There's, there's There's no, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven, except... There is no except. It's settled. It's already been established. It's already been put down. There's no changing it. The world is offended that you would claim to have absolute truth. They're offended by that. Secondly, he says, for the word of God, secondly, for the testimony which they held. Those who were slain actually lived their faith. Now, if you don't live your faith, there's little possibility that anyone's going to trouble you. There's little possibility that was going to bother you. Because as far as they're concerned, you're just one of them. You're just one of them. Your absence, excuse me, your silence is perceived as approval. Your silence is perceived as approval. Since you don't say anything, they assume you believe what they believe. Those who were slain actually lived by these truths and preached them as well. The nominal or worldly Christian is not a threat to the world or to the kingdom of darkness. And as I said earlier, the word testimony, the Greek noun martyria, which means witness. They were martyred for their witness. Some of you are afraid to be a witness. Maybe you're afraid because you you might not have all the answers. You're afraid because they might show that you are lacking in knowledge. Just remember what a witness is. You're at a stoplight. Suddenly a car crosses the intersection. He has the green light. He crosses the intersection, but someone from the opposite direction who has a red light goes right through that red light and plows into the guy that has the green light. Police are called and they say will you be a witness for this accident? I don't know if I'll be a witness. Here's what they'll say. We just want you to tell us what you saw. That's all. You don't need to evaluate how fast the man was going. You don't need to evaluate the pressure, the, the hydraulic pressure in the brake lines at the time of the accident. You don't need to, to define how long the skid, works, uh, skid marks were. You don't need to tell us any of that. We don't know about it. All we want you to know, do is tell us what you know. That's what a witness is. You can't tell more than what you know, but just tell what you know. And I assure you, what you know is far more than what the lost person knows. But these people were a witness. They they told what they saw. They told what they knew. And their love for their fellow man was greater than their love for themselves. These individuals, they were martyred for their witness. A witness not only speaks through his words. Listen. A witness not only speaks through his words, he speaks through his walk. If you're raising children, if you have raised children... You will know, in raising children, they listen far more to what you do than to what you say. You can say all day long, hey you kids, pick up your toys. But your coat is on the floor there, your shoes are over here. And you tell them, pick up your things. Well, they heard you. They heard the words that came out of your mouth. But in reality, they heard what you did more than what you said. And the same with the world. Everybody's a Christian who's not an atheist today. Well, now with the Muslims being added into the mix, it's a little different. But in reality, if you're not an atheist, you're probably a Christian. That's what they would say. Well, sure, I'm a Christian. But you listen to them talk, and every other word is laced with profanities of one kind or another. They don't ever go to church. They don't have a Bible, but they would call themselves a Christian. These people are not the ones that are going to be martyred. These are not the ones that Paul speaks of when he says all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's point number one. The souls of the martyrs. The next two points go much more quickly. Secondly, the cries of the martyrs. Look at verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now remember when we're looking at this, we must remember that this is a vision, not a literal picture of heaven. There is no literal altar in heaven, just as there is no unhappiness, or bitterness, or frustration, or anger, or thirst for revenge in heaven. There is none of that in heaven. Therefore, this is not a sour grapes cry for vengeance from embittered saints But rather an acknowledgement that God sees the sufferings of his saints. And that justice will be done. It's not the saints in heaven that are crying out for vengeance. It's we on earth that are crying out for vengeance. My father-in-law used to say to me. What about these Christians? They give their life to God. And they live in squalor in Appalachia, trying to reach out to the hillbillies down there. I, I don't mean to be despairing in any way, but the, the, the Appalachian people. Some of them live where there's no electricity and they have no running water. And My father-in-law would say, is that fair that they have given their life to God and that's, they live and die in squalor and then there are these people on earth who have all kinds of money and all kinds of affluence and influence and, And they don't suffer at all. How can that be right? And I would tell him, go to the 73rd Psalm. Asaph asked the same question. He was envious of the wicked until he considered their end. When he went into the house of the Lord and considered their end, then he realized, this is all they have. So if my fellow Christian, my Christian brother or sister, lives in squalor while serving the Lord, they're happy living in squalor, serving the Lord. They're filled with joy. Any person who decides to serve the Lord, most men in the ministry will be able to give you a a litany of stories of how they were run out of churches, how they were abused, how they were nearly starved. (coughs) The phrase, the joking phrase was that the deacon board would say to God, Lord, you keep them humble and we'll keep them poor. And that will be a good a good blend. But God has taken care of his people and every single one of those situations that pastors and pastors' families and pastors' wives and children have gone through. They are for the purpose of building up their faith, strengthening them in their walk with Christ, so that when they're counseling their people who are under them, they're able to say, I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. Very similar to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. But he knows what we're going through because he was one. He was God with skin on him. He knows what what we're going through. This here is a teaching moment for all who dwell upon the earth. Remember that when Stephen was being stoned... He didn't cry out for vengeance. He didn't say in the midst of his sonic, you're all going to pay. You're going to burn in hell. He didn't say that. He had said that pre- previously in his message when he was preaching to them. This same Jesus you crucified. He did all but write their names on the wall. He said, this same Jesus you crucified. but so what, did, what did Stephen say when he cried out to the Lord? He said in Acts 7 verse 60, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He's dying from being stoned and he's not crying for vengeance. He's crying for mercy for them. His soul is secure. I'm going to be with Jesus in a little bit. My soul is secure. It's you I'm concerned about. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. There was no personal vindictiveness on His part. He sought the glory of God, and that's what's being said here. How much longer, O Lord, until You judge all wickedness? This is a question that all of the righteous on earth ask: How much longer, Lord? How much longer? So that at the end, the last verse of Revelation, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm I'm longing for the day that all evil is gone. And the just will be vindicated and the wicked will be judged. And I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. But I know that God will vindicate his name. That's what's being said here. How much longer, O Lord, until you judge all wickedness? Is that your desire? Is that your desire? Are you concerned with the glory of God? Or are you concerned more with getting your ounce of justice Getting the pound of flesh from those who are making it difficult for believers. At the time of their deaths, the martyrs were glorifying God, and His truth was on display. That's why they were martyred. Okay, so, souls of the martyrs, verse 9. Cries of the martyrs, verse 10. Lastly, the robes of the martyrs, verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. Here they're given white robes as a symbol of eternal justification, of purity, righteousness. In Revelation 7:9, white robes are given to all believers of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues who proclaim... Quote, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what they proclaim when the white robes are placed upon them. They're not saying, ha ha, we got in and you didn't. Their whole emphasis is on the glory of God. Sin causes us to focus upon the suffering of man. But the Spirit of God wants us to focus on the glory of God. That if I am forced to suffer, may it be for the glory of God. No one is looking forward to suffering, but James says, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Listen, we ought to be honest, we're, we're trying to avoid trials at every cost. We're trying to avoid them. And then in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 7, they are said to have come out of the great tribulation. These who came from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue who were adorned with white robes. They are said to have come out of the great tribulation. And they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They all came through the great tribulation. The great tribulation is the time of the, from the time that Christ left the earth until he returns. It's a time in this world. It's the sojourn in this world. As we go through, this is the great tribulation. It's not an experience yet to come, but it's the experience of the totality of our Christian life. This is a world of tribulation. That's what we're talking about here. And now that they are free from the tribulation of this world, they are said to rest a little while longer. Things are not done yet. There's more to come. There are more who will suffer and die for their faith. There have been those in the past, there will be those in the future, and there will be those in our time as well. As we're looking at the wickedness of our own land, and it is a wicked time, as we're looking at the wickedness of our own land, if things progress and continue to get more and more severe, the Christian will be public enemy number one. The born again child of God will be public enemy number one. King Ahab said to Elijah, you are the troubler. Of Israel. You're the reason we're all in trouble here. You're the reason there's been this great drought. It's all your fault. When in fact the drought came because of Ahab and his wickedness. But the world won't see that. They won't see that all of the suffering in this world is their fault. Because they've rejected God. They won't see that. They'll say it's somebody's fault. Who is it? Ah, it's the Christians fault. When the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed just as they were is completed or brought to its conclusion then the Lord will return. We don't know when that is but we know that God is building a spiritual house. And every believer is another spiritual stone in that house, another spiritual brick. And when that last stone is put in place when that last stone is put in there's no reason for Christ to stay away. The last of the elect have been brought into the family of God in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. At that point in time, Christ comes and gathers all the elect and presents them to his Father. These are the ones, Father, these are the ones you chose. These are the ones I suffered and died for. These are the ones that the Spirit of God went through all four corners of the earth, every tribe, nation, people, tongue, and drew them to you and brought them to you. They all belong to you. He will present them one day. Rest is what awaits every child of God. Eternal rest. Rest from labors. Rest from sorrows. Rest from death. Rest from sin. And rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. Are you resting in Christ? If you're resting in Christ, then your citizenship is in heaven, and the moment you close your eyes in death, You'll be transported into His presence and you will rest forever and ever and ever. When I was a little child, I said to my mother one time, we were off from school for summer vacation. And I said to my mother, Man, we got, we, we got all kinds of things we got to do at summer vacation. What do you want to do, Mom? My mom said, Sleep. I just want to sleep. That's all I want to do. As a ten-year-old boy, I thought... Why would you waste your life sleeping? when we have so many things to do. But the rest that's assured in heaven is a spiritual rest that no earthly sleep can even come close to accomplishing. We belong to Him. We rest in Him. And the Lord's day is the beautiful, glorious example of that rest. We get to pull away from all of the world and all of its trappings and all of its sorrow and all of its workings and madness And we get to come together and say, God is good. All the time. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, again we have been reminded that you are God and we are not. And this book of Revelation reveals to us things that we were unclear about. Things that we are uncertain of the truths that You promised those who read and study would receive a great blessing. We've already received blessings of knowing that no matter what happens here and now, it's all under Your watchful eye and care. We have nothing to fear. Father, forgive us for the ways that we fail You. We pray that we would be better today than we were yesterday. And that You'll use what was said today to grow us in Your grace, to strengthen us in our walk. That we would be so much more like you than we are. And so much less like ourselves. Father, glorify yourself through this small group here. That we would leave here and not soon forget these things. But begin to remove from our lives those things that hinder us in our walk with you. And that we would systematically, day by day, say, Lord, here am I. Send me. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.